Our sermon text is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read through the first half of verse 21, which the second half, I believe, turns into the following theme. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the sermon in a sentence would be this, God's goal for us in our salvation is to create in us simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Paul shares four ways, four expressions of what simple, pure devotion to Jesus looks like. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is four categorical ways that true, pure simple devotion to Jesus is manifested. I'll mention the four to you, and then maybe you'll just see them in order as we read these 21 verses. Simple, pure devotion to Jesus means that you wholly, without reservation, give to the Lord Jesus your mind. Second, that you gladly, self-sacrificially, give to His people your life. Third, that you, without hesitation, give to His enemies your rebuke. And then fourth and finally, that you, with great joy, give to His servants your attention. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, hear the word of the Lord. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Verse 12, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity 
from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Verse 16. Again I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may boast a little. What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also for you being so wise. Tolerate the foolish gladly. You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. The Word of God. Father, would You dispatch the omnipotent third person of the Trinity to exercise His power, Holy Spirit power in our life to the end that every last one among us would not be exempt in any way from simple, pure devotion to Jesus. We ask this for Your glory in His name. Amen. Since in this section Paul responds to his critics by taking on on the persona of a fool, there's, there's sarcasm and irony in this passage, He says it explicitly in verse 1, verse 16, verse 17, verse 19, again in chapter 12, verse 11. This entire section, 11.1 through 12.13, has been referred to by many scholars as Paul's fool's speech. In it, the speech really begins in the second half of verse 21, where we stopped. But in this section, Paul is using parody to show the emptiness of, of his opponent's boast. The fool's speech, as I mentioned, begins in next week's text, although the theme appears four times in this week's passage. But this passage is, as Matt said, right at the beginning of today's service and prayed multiple times already. The theme is really simple, pure devotion to Christ. Verse 3. As I mentioned, Paul unfolds four aspects of what such a life of devotedness to Jesus would look like. Last week's text ended, verse 17, by commanding us to boast in the Lord. This week's passage shows us how. The first is, verses 1 to 6, simple, pure devotion to Christ involves giving him our mind. 
giving our minds to Christ. There's two aspects in those first six verses of what that looks like. The first is verses 1 to 3. Giving Christ your mind manifests in a holy jealousy. Have you experienced this? Verses 1, 2, and 3. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you. With a godly jealousy. Giving your minds to Christ manifests itself in a holy jealousy. Look at the picturesque language. You can almost envision the ceremony. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. I proposed you to Jesus and you said yes. This is not erotic language. It's purity language. It's not the language of godless sensuality. It's the language of gospel sanctification. It's reminiscent of so many Old Testament passages where God speaks of Israel as His betrothed bride. Isaiah 50, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2. Let me illustrate it for you. I'll rob and adjust an illustration I've heard maybe you as well from our brother Paul Washer, who spoke of imagining a a special forces warrior of our military coming to your house in haste because he's been called away on assignment and, and this special forces warrior entrusts to you the care of his most precious possession, his preteen daughter. And he goes away to war only to come back a couple years later to observe that in the meantime, while he was away doing his diligence, you painted up his daughter with makeup like a prostitute and dressed her in a wardrobe that was according to that and paraded her before carnal men for their sinister pleasures. What do you suppose such a warrior might do to you upon his return. How much more severe do you think it would be then for those who take Christ's bride to whom she has been betrothed and instead of keeping her pure unto Him upon the day of His glorious and long-anticipated return, she has been soiled by those who masqueraded as her caretakers. That's what Paul was afraid of. That's his word, verse 3. The Old Testament connection he uses in verse 3 is riveting. It is a matter of great trepidation. Look at the Old Testament passage. You'll immediately know where it comes from in verse 3. When the serpent entered the Garden of Eden and began to talk to the matriarch of the human race, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, my fear is that your minds, your minds, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. I think the most important word, or at least the word on which that Old Testament reference turns is two letters long. A-S. As. As 
Greek word hosts. Like the serpent did that, I'm afraid it's happening to you. So you've got to ask the obvious question. How did the serpent do it? Now we've all heard, I trust, many wonderful sermons on Genesis chapter 3, and I never cease to be amazed at the multi-layered, beautiful insights that come from that passage. They're endless. The, the, the Bible is a bottomless well of the mind and heart of God. But fundamentally, what Satan did to deceive Eve was that he shifted the focus of God's Word from Christ to her. That was the fundamental deception. He did not disregard God's Word. He diluted it. He was deceptive in his use of it. Prior to the serpent's arrival in the garden, Eve's entire existence, from the time she was created out of the rib of the man, was nothing but exhilarating, unbroken fellowship with her Creator and King. But when the serpent came, he didn't deny God's Word. As I said, he diluted it, he twisted it, and the fundamental toxin that the serpent stirred into his potion of deception was to suddenly shift the focus from its author to its subjects. The serpent's ploy in Genesis chapter 3 was fundamentally tempting our first parents to be me-centered in their relationship with God. Rather than God-centered, he sold them a bill of goods that God was holding out on them. And Eve bought it. His deception was at root, I believe, fundamentally, you, not God, should be at the center of the relationship. Deciding for yourselves what's right and what's wrong. So do you see the connection now why Paul uses that account in 2 Corinthians 11.3? That is precisely how these false apostles were scheming in the church at Corinth. They were subtly shifting the focus of God's Word from Christ to their prideful, carnal desires. And if He can get you to join Satan, any so-called minister of the Word can get you to join Satan in using the Bible to puff up your own pride, your mind is on the fast track to joining Eve and being led astray from what? The Word-saturated Christ-centeredness of your heart. Your heart was designed to follow your head. That's why God wrote us a book. But your mind's not the end. Your mind is the means to the end. Theology, the truth about God, was always meant to lead to doxology, the worship of God. How are you going to be fully, simply, purely devoted to Christ? Your heart has to be saturated with what seeps into it through your mind, the truth of God's Word. If your Bible reading yields great knowledge, precision, exegesis, flawless hermeneutics, but never moves your affections to Christ. You haven't gone far enough. Verse 3, the reason Paul wanted their minds led astray. Uh, Paul did not want their minds led astray from Jesus is because he did want their heart devoted to Him. 
The doctrine of God was always designed to be the pathway to delight in God. How is it with you in your mind? This whole section of 2 Corinthians is just saturated with mind sort of focus. The previous chapter, verse 5, we destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to the obedience, to obedience to Christ. That's what Paul's after in verse 2. That's what his preaching is about. But the second aspect is not only this holy jealousy as a manifestation of simple, pure devotion to Christ. A holy jealousy of giving our mind to Christ. But second, under this first point, there's in verses 4-6 to another way this manifests. That is giving Christ your mind would manifest in holy hospitality. Who you entertain. I'm not talking about who only eats dinner at your kitchen table. I'm talking about who you host for spiritual influence. Verses 4 to 6, the Corinthians had already been schnookered. The guys with the fancy philosophy and the biblical gymnastics that made the text all about themselves had already done a number on the church by the time Paul is writing this letter. The congregation was literally paying these guys to come into town and lie to them about God. The same thing happens in abundance today. It's happened in every generation. That's why in the next section, Paul refers to the fact that he never charged them a dime while he was telling them the truth. But these shysters were not only deceiving the church, they were making a mint doing it. Before Paul deals with the money issue, though, he deals with the key to the front door issue. It's their unholy hospitality. The Corinthians were so amazingly hospitable to folks. I mean, they're open. So amazingly hospitable to folks who were such enemies of the cross of Christ. That's not a virtue. That's a vice. Paul's stern rebuke to the church at the end of verse 4 comes in a parody phrase, a sarcastic phrase. You bear this beautifully. What did they beautifully bear? Three things, verse 4. Those who come in and preach another Jesus. Those who proclaim a different spirit. And those who herald a different gospel. Welcome, preacher man, to do that. That's unholy hospitality. They preach another Jesus. The, the issue, if somebody preaches another Jesus, must mean that the fundamental question, as we say around here a lot, is not, do you follow Jesus? The fundamental Bible question is, which Jesus do you follow? Is it the God of your own imagination? Your Cheshire cat in the sky? Your lucky rabbit foot Jesus? Your vending machine Jesus? Do you a little magic trick when you need Him? Your subsidiary auxiliary orbit around you out there somewhere in the sphere of the galaxy of your all-important self and you just kind of reel Him in as needed? Or this Jesus? Who you don't get to decide whether or not He gets preeminence in everything. God's already given it to him he has the name above every name you don't make him lord you bow before him and acknowledge that he is these people are preaching another jesus they proclaimed a different spirit but let me zone in on the third 
They heralded a different gospel. Friends, there's nothing more important than the euangelion. That's the word for gospel. The good news. Everybody has a gospel. The question is, which gospel is it? Everybody, what I mean by that is everybody believes in some form of human fulfillment. Everybody believes in some form of human fulfillment. Therefore, this is just kind of the logical way of breaking it down, everybody has a functional hell. If if hell to you is being poor, then salvation to you is being well-financed. Money is your savior. If hell to you is not liking your body image, then then your savior is a suitable physique, whatever you would attribute that to be. If hell to you is not being popular, then attention is your savior. Everybody has a gospel. Everybody's got a savior. These people had a different one than Paul did. And the church at Corinth was entertaining what verse 4 refers to as a different gospel. This is absolutely deadly. What was the problem? Pardon, let me me say it this way. Was the problem that Paul just hadn't been clear enough on what the true gospel really is? Is that why the church was gladly, verse 4, extending hospitality to messengers who, verse 4, proclaimed a different gospel? Listen carefully to Paul's clear gospel message just in his letters to the church at Corinth. Not to mention his one and a half years of pastoral ministry among them where no doubt he only knew Christ and Him crucified in his proclamation. This is what Paul said the gospel was to this church, not in all his other letters, to this church. 1 Corinthians it is the word of the cross, 118. And those who are being saved by it know the cross of Christ to be, quote, the power of God. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23-24, we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, all the peoples, Christ. The power of God and wisdom of God. That's his gospel. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. That is righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, that's Paul's gospel. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Christ. And Him crucified. That's His Gospel. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Christ our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. That's His Gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. The great Gospel summation statement of the whole Bible. Now I make known to you, brethren, the Gospel which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if You hold fast the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. What is that gospel, Paul? I'm so glad you asked. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ 
died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me too. That's His Gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Here's his gospel. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. There's his gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's His Gospel. 2 Corinthians 8.9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know He's about to unpack the Gospel. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What grace? That though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become rich. That's His Gospel. And in 2 Corinthians 9, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the Gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. You see, there was no room in Corinth for mistaking what Paul meant when he spoke about the gospel. The Corinthians couldn't play dumb. They couldn't get away with acting as if they only fell for the fraudulent gospels because Paul didn't make his gospel plain to them. This is why Paul is so concerned for the Corinthians. That's why their hospitality toward these itinerant preachers was poisonous. And he tells them in verse 4, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, you receive a different spirit which you've not received or a different gospel which you've not accepted. You bear this beautifully. What a simple, pure devotion to Christ look like. Holy jealousy for those who are betrothed to Jesus to be purely, simply devoted to Him and for churches to exercise holy hospitality that does not budge one inch on entertaining deviations from the one true, pure, God-centered gospel of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection as the only unifying source between man and God and man and man. That's simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Number two, that was our longest point. Verses 7-11. through Simple, pure devotion to Christ involves not only giving Him your mind, but giving your life to serve His people. It's been said many times, you can't love Jesus and hate His kids. Do you love His people? And does your love manifest in a willingness to make any sacrifice to see them beautified with the beauty of Christ? There's two parts to this in verses 7-11. to Serving His people, gladly self-sacrificing for them. The first is verses 7-10. to Giving Christ's people your life leads to glad self-sacrifice. When Paul speaks about, you know, uh, sarcastically, rhetorically, 
The answer is no. Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge, verse 7, and robbing other churches, verse 8, to be able to serve the Corinthians? Or even when he was incarnate, in need, he purposed not to burden the church, but rather some brothers from Macedonia came and from those churches brought the supply for Paul's need. He, verse 9, intentionally prevented himself from being a burden to the church at Corinth and would continue to do so. One of the ironies in this passage, among many, is that Paul did not charge the Corinthians a dime as I said earlier, to deliver God's truth to them. Yet, the Corinthians were meanwhile paying other people to come into town and lie to them about God. Who's making the sacrifice here? Like Christ, Paul was glad to humble himself and to make any sacrifice necessary for the glory of God in the lives of his people. That's why Paul went without charge. It's not wrong to charge money charge in the biblical sense. Laborers worthy of his wages, Paul says in another place. But a key expression of Paul's simple, pure devotion to Jesus, that he's showing the church at Corinth that they too ought to embrace and express, is verse 8, humility for the sake of, pardon me, verse 7, humility for the sake of others, and verses 8 and 9, a sacrificial lifestyle for the purpose of serving Christ's people. That's the principle. You humble yourself so that others can get close to Jesus. You don't step on them. You get under them and you try to push people into the third heaven. That's the way simple, pure, devoted to Jesus people use their life. They seek to push people. Humble themselves so that they may be exalted. And, verses 8 and 9 a glad sacrificial lifestyle for the purpose of serving the people for whom Jesus died. When embraced by faith, the gospel has a powerful effect on one's entire life. You never get beyond the gospel. But nowhere is that effect more clear than in the humbling of the pride of man and the exaltation of the honor of God. Paul was able to say to this same church in his first epistle, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. As I mentioned, it wouldn't have been wrong for the church at Corinth to pay Paul's living expenses for his gospel labors among them. 1 Timothy 5.18, he straight up says that's what's supposed to happen. But meanwhile, picture this. And more than picturing it, would you be okay with it? Meanwhile, churches in another region, Macedonia, Corinth is in Achaia, churches in that region wanted the gospel to flourish in the hearts of the Corinthians so much so that while they're not meeting Paul's basic living needs, these churches are gladly sacrificing, we know from this same letter that they were poor, an abundance of poverty. They were giving money to support Paul so that the Corinthians would know the fullness of Christ in their life. Would you be okay with that? I mean, if you were one of the members of the church at Corinth, would you be okay with that? With or without monetary support, Paul was glad to humble himself. He's not being self-righteous here. He's telling them the truth. 
that He would make any sacrifice necessary to see those people beautified with the beauty of Jesus. That's what He wanted. Do you burn with that same passion for other believers? When you see somebody, Hebrews 2.1, drifting away from the dock of Christ. Or Hebrews 2.3, neglecting so great a salvation. Are you ready and willing to jump into the waves and make any sacrifice necessary to help pull them back to the narrow way of walking in fellowship with Jesus? I'm saying that what simple pure devotion to Christ looks like in this text is that you gladly sacrifice yourself for the Christ-centered gospel advance of His people. There's a powerful motivating factor that must fuel such a sacrificial life. It's not willpower. It's gospel love, which is the second part of point two, verse 11. Giving Christ's people your life doesn't mean that you love them. That's true, but it's qualified. You love them with His love. Look at verse 11. Paul's boast was rooted in a confidence that his love for the church at Corinth was not his love. It was God's love for them through Him. Do you love God's people this way? Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. The word for love in verse 11 is the word agape. Paul uses the same word in Corinthians to talk about God's love coming through Him to them. I'm not just saying every single time you see agape, you can just, you know, make it mean this. I'm saying two chapters earlier, he said in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, through God agapes a cheerful giver. That's God's love coming to them. The ability to give... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, monetarily for the needs of his people, in that case, Corinth to Jerusalem, is actually less of an expression of your love to God. It is that. But that's derivative. It's actually an expression of his love to you. That you have the ability to do that. His agape for cheerful givers, is manifested in their ability to give cheerfully. And it's poured out His agape love. The next chapter after our sermon text, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, 15 says, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls if I love you more, agape, am I to love you less? You just read the context in the verse right before that. And you'll find that he's talking about God's love coming through him to them. Dear ones, loving the saints with God's love is what simple, pure devotion to Christ looks like. If you're going to be shoulder to shoulder with somebody for a hundred trillion eternities, fascinated with the love of God for you in Christ, and thrilled that they are recipients of His love, wouldn't it stand to reason that for 70 or 80 or 90 years on this side of eternity, you might want to express that same love that for trillions of eternities you will express to them? Wouldn't it stand to reason that you would want to show them that now? It's more than logic. 
It's theologic. It's God's logic. Do you know where to find this love in order to give it to other people? Do you know how to live beneath the waterfall of God's agape for you? There's only one way. Pitch the tent of your life at the foot of the cross where Jesus died as the demonstration of God's love for you while you were yet a sinner separated from God. And never leave the shadow of the cross. And then, as you look at your Savior giving His life for your ransom, and then you look at your brother or sister for whom Jesus also gave His life as their ransom, you won't be able to help but have His love course through your veins toward them. And Paul in verse 11 says, God knows I agape you. Third, verses 12 to 15, simple pure devotion to Christ, we've said, basically is giving Christ your mind, giving His people your life, and number three, giving His enemies our rebuke. Now some people are on a hair trigger for this. It's not what Paul's talking about. Some people just love to tell everybody they're wrong. Not what Paul's talking about. Verse 12 is a war strategy language. There's two parts to verses 12 to 15 also. The first is verse 12. Giving Christ's enemies your rebuke means you have to realize that we're in war. This isn't peacetime. This is wartime. And the enemy is seeking to make advance into Christ's territory. Look, we ought not be surprised when lost people act like lost people. But when the enemy encroaches into the church... We should have already been on red alert. Verse 12 is war strategy language. Paul is seeking to outwit the enemies of the cross of Christ like a general would seek to outwit an opposing military. In verse 12, Paul is seeking to set up a beachhead behind the enemy lines to cut off their supply. It's active language. He wants to bomb their primary bridges and thoroughfares so that they cannot get inside of Christ's territory. Verse 12, but what I'm doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off, ESV, undermine, opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they're boasting. All of this strategic, proactive attack on Paul's part was motivated by his simple, pure devotion to Christ that sought to protect the flock for whom Jesus died. Such devotion to Jesus is not an isolated experience. That's not how we devote our life to Christ. It's not me and Jesus private. It's very personal. It's not private. Rather, simple, pure devotion to Christ doesn't happen off in a monastery somewhere. It happens in large part by living on alert that we are in a wartime situation where enemies of Christ and His cross are seeking to creep in here. This isn't theoretical preaching that might apply one day. I'm talking about this church In this time, the enemy's always trying to rear his ugly head, to creep into the sheep pen, to do damage to those for whom Jesus died. If he cannot finally destroy you, and believer, he cannot, he will do all he can to distract you from Christ. Therefore, those who are devoted to Jesus are ready and willing to fulfill our service to our King by cutting off, verse 12, undermining those who desire to dilute the gospel of Christ. But also, such devotion to Jesus requires drawing clear lines of demarcation 
between His servants and the servants of Satan. Verses 13 to 15 is scary, isn't it? This is the second subpoint under number three, giving His enemies our rebuke. First, we draw lines. We seek to undermine the enemy's attack. But the second part of that is giving Christ's enemies our rebuke means we call out satanic deceptions for what they are. Now, we live in a very childish day. It, it, it's kind of hard to be honest for me to know I've prayed and sought the Lord and maybe what I say in the next few minutes will be moderately helpful. But we live in such a childish day of cancel culture. It's almost hard to say this in a way that won't be misheard. I mean, if somebody disagrees with somebody on the internet, you just cancel them. And then, you just move on and don't have any detractors. Nobody who ever disagrees with you. You just accumulate for yourself an echo chamber of those who will only reinforce your already prideful position. 2 Timothy chapter 4 talks about that. So on one hand, while we live in the day of that kind of culture, we also, this is my effort to speak it faithfully, we live in a other, another kind of twofold day. One, cowardly prophets who will never name names. Never say this person's dangerous. That person's an enemy of Christ. That person's a satanic ambassador. So on one hand, we have cowardly prophets who won't name names. And on the other hand, we have self-proclaimed prophets whose entire agenda is to incessantly virtue signal by self-righteously naming everybody's name except themselves. Of course, they're you know, perfectly illumined and have no fault, and they tell everybody else how wrong they are. Does it surprise you that in this passage, Paul knows exactly who he's talking about. The Corinthian church knows the faces and the names of the people he's talking about. And he never says their name. Does that surprise you? It's not because Paul's a, Paul's a coward. It's because he knew and they knew and they knew that he knew exactly to whom he was referring. This is similar to Galatians. The most serious problem in the New Testament that was addressed was addressed through the book of Galatians where the people weren't just entertaining folks who were one click off true north and not preaching Jesus faithfully, but those folks in the Galatian region were entertaining false gospels from false prophets. But Paul didn't name any names in Galatians either. The most serious situation in the New Testament, Paul didn't say one name. Again, it's not because he's a coward. In 2 Timothy 3, he just generally talks about imposters. They knew who he was talking about. But in other passages, though, Paul is quick to name names. In, in no uncertain terms, Paul names all sorts of people with strong, clear rebukes. Go read 2 Timothy sometime soon. Phagellus and Hermogenes in chapter 1 who turned away from Paul in Asia. Hymenaeus and Philetus in chapter 2 who were full of worldly, empty chatter. My goodness, was that written this morning? Or was that written 2,000 years ago? Men full of worldly empty chatter leading to ungodliness that spreads like gangrene. Who does that? Hymenaeus does that. 
Who else is constantly talking in a worldly way, Paul? Philetus. Don't listen to those men. What about chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, where Paul talks about Demas, who loved this present world and therefore deserted Paul? And just to make sure that nobody in Ephesus misunderstood which Alexander he's talking about, Alexander the coppersmith, chapter 4, verse 19, is the one who did Paul much harm. He's not opposed to naming names. He just knows that there are times you do it and there are times you don't. In our passage, Paul opts not to name names but they knew exactly who he was subtweeting. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles. Such men are deceitful workers. Such men disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. They had the people in their favorites list on their speed dial. They knew who he was talking about. Brothers and sisters, isn't it easy to talk about those people? Are any of you doing the same thing Paul rebuked here? I love you enough to ask you that question soberly and seriously. We're not talking about those people. Are any of you doing this exact same thing? Are you, are you paying people to lie to you about God? God forbid, I, I, I'm not that guy, but the, I'm actually not the one that I'm talking about right now. You may not be mailing money to TBN, but, but are you paying your internet provider? Month after month after month, paying your bill on time so that you can get a high-speed stream to listen to hours and hours and read articles and headlines after headlines or follow Twitter feeds until your eyes are heavy that come from people who are Christless and crossless and God-belittling and giving you sound bites to fuel your prideful political personalities and preferences? Are you listening to race baiters for hours and hours and hours on end like those whose ambition is to stoke the coals of the fire of your anger that will lead to hell itself? Are you paying people to lie to you about God. That's what Corinth was doing. They knew who those people were. I trust you know who those people are too. I don't believe I need to name names for you to know if you're a devotee to the doctrine of demons. Just because somebody looks or sounds attractive does not mean their message will not destroy your soul for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. You can't start. If you cannot start, with simple, pure devotion to Christ, you can't arrive there by entertaining satanic spokesmen whose flute soothes you into a hypnotic spiritual sleep and numbs your mind away from the all-surpassing brilliance and sufficiency of Jesus through their silky smooth words with Bible verses attached to it. What I'm saying is not 
Should you limit your intake of such voices? I'm saying you should repent from ever having been attracted to them in the first place. And you should do an about face and give your mind's attention to the truth of God's Word and to those who are devoted to Him. Isn't it sad? When God's people have such strong opinions and perspectives on the deepest problems plaguing our generation, but all those strong opinions and all those bold perspectives are totally devoid of the Gospel of Jesus Christ as the starting place, the pathway, and the solution, it's not just sad. According to verse 14 and 15, it's satanic. I don't know if you can read between the lines of verses 14 and 15 clearly enough to know who Paul's talking about. But these verses do apply to us also. Do you want an application? Ask yourself this question. Who's your favorite fire stoker? On the big hot topic issues facing the church in our generation. And how clearly does that voice or those voices, how clearly, I mean clear, explicit, you don't need special powers of interpretation to figure it out. How clearly do your favorites exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the only adequate answer? These false apostles had hundreds of thousands of followers in their social media feed. They just never talked about Jesus. Do you ever come to church wondering why the preacher never talks about the exact same stuff the exact same way that your favorite news or media personalities talk about it? I mean, honestly, do you ever wonder why won't he just say, fill in the blank, I hope this doesn't discourage you. The church of Jesus is a living, living organism and the only institution on planet earth that has the message of true hope for hell-bound humanity and, and we don't intend to deviate from it. We have one message. Every week, every passage, one message. Jesus Christ is Lord. Dear friends, those who savingly know Jesus can't unsee Him. I understand that we're living in a really tumultuous time. But we can't unsee 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the glory of God in the face of Christ. You can't unsee Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of the glory of God beaming from the face of His Son. You can't unsee Revelation 1.5, the, the blood of the Lamb that washes you clean from all your sin and makes you right with God forever. You can't unhear John 17.24, when Jesus isn't talking to you, He's praying to His Father and He says, Father, oh, would you let all my people be with me one day where I am so that they can see my glory. You can't unhear that prayer if you know Him. So, His glory and His sufficiency is going to sustain every last one of His people in perfect harmony with no division between them for all of eternity. He's got to be relevant to the issues that seek to jeopardize our harmony now. So repent. Repent from Christless solutions 
and from giving your attention to those who make a living building internet platforms, trumpeting to you their perspectives. Such Christless people are Satan's servants. And I wouldn't talk about it here unless I knew that we were all in jeopardy of allowing them to creep in here. And they are creeping in. Because whether it's minutes or hours or days, if you're feeding your mind on that garbage, I guarantee you it's distracting you from Christ. Use this as a guide to determine who should inform the way you think about the most pressing issues in our world. Paul's criteria, one commentator said, for determining what is foolish was not Greek philosophy. That's what Corinth was impressed with. What would Greek philosophy be like in our day? It it would be popular modern philosophers, news outlets, radio and social media thought leaders. That's our Greek philosophers. It would not be them, this commentator writes, or the theater. What would the theater be in our day? In modern terms, that would be celebrities, popular people. So this commentator says, Paul's criteria for determining what is foolish is not, not Greek philosophy, not the theater, but not talking as the Lord would talk. Chapter 11, verse 17. Instead, talking in chapter 11, verse 18, the way the world talks, which literally translated 11.18 is according to the flesh. Do you talk just like lost people talk? About all the most important issues in our society? Thus, the commentator concludes, foolish boasting focuses on human distinctives and spiritual experiences instead of calling attention to the Lord as the giver of all things in Christ. Put another way, if the water you drink all week long is laced with cyanide, it's not going to make you more healthy. At some point, it's perfectly appropriate to ask the same question in our day that Paul asked to the Galatian churches in his his day. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? That's fundamentally what he's saying to the church at Corinth. You have the true gospel. And you're going to pay people to come in here and lie to you about God? Which ties directly into our fourth and final point. It's the opposite side of giving your attention to Satan and his servants. Verses 16 to 21. Simple, pure devotion to Christ. Not only you give Him your mind, you give His people your life, you give His enemies your rebuke, but also you give His servants your attention. You give His servants your attention. I don't know why God designed it this way. I just know He's wiser than any of us. And for some reason... He found it fitting that He would gift from the risen Jesus to every local church people to just hold Christ out from the Word to them time and time again. That's God's design. I think it's a rather strange idea. In the 21st century, when you got the history of the information of the world on a gadget in your pocket, you're sitting here listening to one guy monologue. But this is a parable of salvation where you sit there and do nothing. And Exodus 14 happens for you. Be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Preaching is a parable of the gospel. You do nothing but receive, and God does everything on your behalf. That's why He designed it, I believe, fundamentally. 
And so His people give His servants their attention. They don't give Satan's servants their attention. They give Him their attention. That's what simple, pure devotion to Christ looks like. Verses 19 to 21. The Corinthians were glutton for punishment. gluttons for punishment, weren't they? But they didn't know it. They got gaslighted. They're not off the hook. They're at fault. But there are predatorial people in this world who seek to take advantage of other people. And the Corinthians just got snookered. They got gaslighted. Verse 19, they were glad about it. But if they were in their right mind, they wouldn't have been glad about it. I mean, that's Paul's words. You bear this gladly. What did they bear gladly? Verse 20, tolerating these men who did what to them? Enslave them, devour them, take advantage of them. So abused was this church by those shysters that the Corinthian congregation sat there with smiles on their faces and their Bibles open as these people exalted themselves, verse 20, and slapped the church in the face. But verse 19 says they were glad about that. Accentuating the irony, verse 21a, Paul says in no doubt a way of parody that he was too weak to pretend to be as strong as those foolish preachers. He's not going to play their game. You see, the false apostles were literally bringing deadly doctrines into the church. How were they doing it? They were turning the dial of the compass for the minds of the church away from Jesus. But on the contrary, Paul had preached to these precious ones the truth of God's Gospel Word to them. He had demonstrated for them God's own love. And these apostles are killing them. They're literally enslaving them, devouring them, and hitting them in the face. That's kill you language. Paul, on the other hand, told this this same church, let me tell you the references and then tell you what he said, just so you can know how many times he said it. Chapter 1, verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Chapter 7, verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 16. Paul told them he would die for them. These people are killing them, and Paul's willing to die for them. So now the question's obvious. Who's loving you with God's love in the equation? When one is killing you with spiritual poison, and the other is ready to die for you to give you Jesus. When somebody's bringing aberrant doctrines into the church, simple, pure devotion to Jesus looks like calling a spade a spade, rebuking Satan's servants, and listening to those who give us clean water. If the spiritual bartender is slipping poison into your drink, stop going to the bar. On the other hand, simple pure devotion to Jesus, give your life's attention to God and to those that in His wisdom He has given to us to give us pure drinks of water. At least as pure as saved sinners can. I'm sure there's more sin in this sermon to send me to ten hells. I I have not perfectly preached this passage. I'm under no delusion that I have. There's, There's sin in my motives. I'm sure of that. I hate it, but it's there. But people who at least with a heart full of prayer and a Bible open and Jesus in view are trying to give us clean water. 
That's why we say around here on Sundays that we take the Lord's Supper and oh, 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 how I long to meet you at that Gospel table again. We say every single time we take the Lord's Supper, you're welcome to come to this table if the church to which you belong, you're a member or whatever meaningful accountability they call it, if the church to which you belong, listen carefully, preaches the exact same gospel you heard here today, no deviation, let's meet at this gospel table. We say it that way because like Spurgeon put it, a lot of people can preach the gospel better than me. Spurgeon said, nobody can preach a better gospel than me. Friends, there's only one gospel. And whether the servant stammers and stutters and fumbles all over himself trying to get out the real gospel, or whether he's polished and eloquent and tremendously capable, there's only one true gospel. And simple, pure devotion to Christ means we avail ourselves to preachers and teachers who preach the message of Jesus while they're yoked to Christ and while they wear a mantle that they can smell even as they try to herald Jesus and that mantle has been singed in the fires of hell and soaked in the blood of Jesus. And it's the most important thing in the universe. Eternity hangs in the balance on what think ye of Christ. So the application, maybe you'll be excited to know, was the four points of the sermon. It it starts with genuine conversion. You must first turn from your sin and trust Jesus alone to forgive you by His death and resurrection to impute to you His righteousness as you faith Him, you entrust yourself to Him. You have to start there. And it is amazing what true conversion will do to your walk with Jesus. But if you're in Christ, how should you apply the sermon? You should give Him your mind. You should gladly sacrifice yourself for the good of His people. You should rebuke His enemies. And you should give your attention to His servants. May God help us to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that whatever verse 3 means, whether I've hit it on the head or smash the board a bunch of times and occasionally hit the nail, whatever you mean in verse 3, simple, pure devotion to Jesus. Oh Lord, don't let our minds be distracted from that. We ask for Your glory in Jesus' name.